You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at $2, 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. This Digital Noise episode also is a video version for subscribers at the brown coat level or above. Become a subscriber and get the extended video version. Digital Noise has returned. It is our new day in the sun with Sir John Golson. Yeah, yeah, your digital noise boys. What, what? <laughs> well, you took that a different direction than I was heading for, but that's fine. We can go that way if you want. Yeah, boys. We're going to talk about the digital noise. Have you thought about rebranding more extreme? Adding more Zs? Is that street? Is that what the kids are doing? Is that what the kids are saying? That's what the kids were doing. I think it's yeah. time to bring it back. There, there'll be nostalgia for things called extreme or things that end in Z. That, that's going to come back really soon because they're all going to be adults now. <laughs> so, uh, You remember when Looney Tunes even did it? They were like, check out now their extreme cyber Looney Tunes that fight oh, yeah. battles in the digital multiverse. I'm like, oh my God, seriously? That was a thing. Thankfully, it didn't last long. And now they, wait, fight battles in the digital multiverse again. But with the help of basketball players, so I guess it's different. And I guess they're in character, right? Like, I'm not going to see Space Jam because I didn't like old Space Jam. I was grown when Space Jam came out. It was terrible. There's no nostalgia hooks. And even other kids' movies, we're not reviewing Space Jam, but even other kids' movies like Sandlot, I was an adult when Sandlot came out in the 90s, even though that was a kid's movie. And I was like, that's a pretty good kid's movie. Yeah, So, like, I could still, heavyweights, that's a pretty good kid's movie. I don't know that one. That's a Ben Stiller Fat Camp movie. Um, It's it's pretty good. Anyways, point is, there were still kids' movies that I could enjoy. Space Jam, no. No, yeah, no, the the whole, I love this, only comes from people who did, in fact, grow up with Space Jam, where they're like, you guys are crazy. Space Jam's actually a good movie. I'm like, or... You've never really learned how to contextually separate yourself from your feelings you had for stuff when you were a kid. Because it's not a good movie. I'm sorry. It's a terrible movie. And that's fine that you love it. You keep on loving it. You go right ahead and love Space Jam. But please don't lecture me about how I'm wrong about hating it. I'm not going to lecture you about being wrong about liking it. (laughs) You know, I'm... We're going to come back to this. So even though we accidentally talked about Space Jam, there's actually a movie. I'm going to bring it back around later. I'm going to bring it back around later. Oh, you're, boy. you're probably already going like, what in the world movie? But I'm going to bring it back around later. I I'm promise. a little scared. A little scared. Yeah. Well, anyway, we've got a big list today. So let's get into it. We're going to st- we're, we're going to launch off with horror this week. I don't always do that. But this time we're going to start with the horror titles. And we're going to start with a weird little title by director Eric Bloomquist 
called 10 Minutes to Midnight, which actually is a, a pretty good title for, for well, almost anything. I, I'd watch a, a movie called that or listen to a band with that name. But I guess this is like its biggest claim to fame is that its star is Caroline, Caroline Williams, who was one of the leads in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Like, ooh, what a get! <laughs> I guess. Um, I do like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, but I think people at the time didn't get it. They were like, because Toby Hooper did not want to make just another Texas Chainsaw Massacre film, so he made a film that was a satire of his own film, and everyone's like, this is dumb, I don't get it. I still think it's kind of good. It gets better every time I see it. Yeah, well, fucking Dennis Hopper and and Leatherface having a, a dick measuring contest with chainsaws is one of the funniest things I think I had seen at that point in my life. And everyone's like, this is dumb. I don't get it. <laughs> anyway, so uh, she plays Amy Marlowe and she is has a late night heavy metal radio show called 10 Minutes to Midnight. And she's been on th- this one radio station for 30 years and she's. It has to deal with her sleazy station manager, Bob, played by William Eumanns, uh, who she can tell when she goes in, something's off and it becomes clear. Well, first off, it, she, when she comes in, she got attacked by a bat and she's got huge two vam- distinctive vampire bite holes that are just leaking blood in her neck. Like, it was just a bat. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> but she's like, okay, well, I'm going to do my show. She can tell something's wrong with the way everybody's acting. There's a new girl in there. Uh, who the boss is like, you know, young, cute, hot thing. And the boss is like, clearly kind of making moves on her. And uh, he's like, yeah, she's going to be your, uh, she's going to be your understudy or whatever. And she's like, the bullshit, what's going on? Like, okay, yeah, we're ending your job and we're, this is your last night and we're replacing you with this girl. And what I thought was just going to be a pretty standard horror, you know, gross out fast with, you know, eventually she's going to turn into a vampire and then other people turn into vampires and then there's carnage turned into a really surreal, I dare I say, faintly cerebral dream logic film that I don't even know if I enjoyed it or not, but I certainly went, well, that was not what I was fucking expecting, especially down to the point where there's a point in the film where all the other cast members changed their who's playing what. So it's like, wait, what? So like one actor is another one. Like even the, the, the hot young girl is now replaced by a, a dude who sadly, apparently the actor passed away before the film came out, uh, from it. But, uh, it's like, it's, it's bizarre. Yeah, it is. It's, I think that the premise is really strong. The, the idea of like, Somebody arriving to work, they've just been bit by a vampire bat. There's also the place is under lockdown because there's a hurricane coming. So no mm-hmm. one can, no one's supposed to leave. It's not safe to leave. So that also applies like a second sort of reason as to everybody having to stay there. I really like the setup. And I think that all the individual elements of it are pretty sound. Special effects get a little weird because there's a lot of digital blood, even for some reason in their mouths. When they have like their mouths open, it's like digitally painted blood. Yeah, yeah. And you could tell that because the black levels of the cinematography, the reds were a darker black level than the black. So like <laughs> if, if blood splattered, it kind of gave a weird sticker effect on your TV as if some, <laughs> something was like on the surface of the film. Right. Um, so the special effects are a little, are a little cheap and a little wobbly, but all of the individual elements, the acting, everything, even the writing is not necessarily bad for these type of efforts. I think for me, it's real like Monday morning quarterbacking is 
this movie is different and stronger if I like the people that she works with. Mm-hmm. And I think the weakness of the movie is sort of setting up that, like, you don't really like the other characters. Like, they're sort of dismissive of her. And, and you know, she's kind of struggling with feeling like she's being aged out of this job. And so she's starting to feel a lot of resentment. And then that carries itself out through, of course, I mean, it is a, it is a vampire movie. So that carries itself out, of course, through her turning into a vampire and like attacking different people and fits of rage and stuff like that. But there's something more dreadful about that, like lock in type movie. If you have some affection for the people that are involved in that lock in. And I really felt like that was the missing ingredient of this whole thing was like a deep sense of caring so that there was some kind of dread created by the fact. Cause I mean, it's one of those movies. She walks in the door, she's got the bite. So you know that things are going to get bad. Um, but I didn't really find myself as invested as I would have been otherwise. Uh, yeah. You know, no, I, even the guy who they set up as the most sympathetic, which is like you know, her, I don't know what you call it. The guy who works in the other booth who, who goes, you know, yeah. three, two, one, you're on the air. That guy who's a younger guy who clearly, you know, she kind of likes and like even more than just likes likes. And she wonders if maybe even though she's definitely not age appropriate for him, he likes her too. But you kind of like him. But then even so, about midway point of the film, they reveal like, yeah, he even knew about this and didn't tell her. I'm like, I, I don't feel like going the way that everybody's against her was the way to go here. But it's not I don't even feel like that's a huge complaint because for what it is, a super low budget film, they actually tried something different. And did something different that I haven't seen before. And so I, and I, I mean, it kept me watching. I was not bored at all watching this. Uh, I thought most of the actors do a decent enough job. Um, the lead actress is, is very convincing in her part. And, uh, yeah, ultimately I'm like, if you like weird little indie horror films that are trying something different, 10 minutes to midnight is definitely one I'd say, yeah, sure, give it a shot if that's your thing. I think you might, it's possible this might be right up your alley. And there are some bonus features even here. This is MVD Entertainment who put out a commentary track. There's some uh, behind the scenes featurettes. There's material from festivals and then the film's trailer. But uh, yeah, 10 minutes to midnight. Who knew? I'll back, yeah, I'll back you up on that. Even if, even if I left, even if I left it less satisfied than you, I'd still back you up. Like it is, it is a little bit of a, uh, it's not a diamond in a rough, but it's something shiny in the rough. <laughs> so our next one is called The Ringmaster, which is from originally called Finale. And it's from Denmark. It's by director Sol Jule Peterson. Uh, just you guess the spelling on all of those words. And it was a huge hit when it played European horror festivals in 2019. It's definitely playing with... Stuff that if you're like straight up, I just don't like films that have torture porn in them at all. The last third of this movie, you're going to be sad you sat through the first two <laughs> thirds because you'll be like, oh, this is pretty much torture porn and really intense. But that being said, I found this really so incredibly well crafted for the first two thirds that I kind of stuck through through the end and the th- third act, even though I went, eh, that was kind of a letdown compared to the suspense you were building, which is a remote gas station in Denmark. There's two retail clerks, Agnes, played by Anne Bergfield, and Belinda, played by Karen Mich- Mickelson. They're working the night shift. One of them is is uh, the daughter of the owner of the place, and she's going to go on to bigger and better things. She's getting married to a guy who's becoming a doctor. She's about to be out of here. This is like her last shift working at this thing. And the other girl's kind of, a, I don't know, 
country. <laughs> you know, she's, I don't know what that is in Denmark. She's a little, she's a little trashy, maybe. And, uh, the whole, but no one is there because there's this huge soccer match. And she's like, they're like, no one is even going to come in here tonight. And then weird shit starts happening that, you know, the, the various customers who come in who act a little strangely. And the movie does the setup from the beginning of knowing at some point these girls are going to be abducted and brought into some sort of weird torture circus by this guy, the aforementioned titular ringmaster, who will be torturing them. Uh, so we know so somebody of these people we're seeing has got to be this guy or connected to this. And that's kind of where the suspense comes in, is that like, oh, we know they're going to go, which one of these people is it? So you're kind of watching the screen for clues. And I think it does lots of clever things to get there. And I don't even hate the third act where it gets into where it goes back to, okay, this is what you've been seeing. It just kind of felt like I wish they had found a, I don't know, smarter way to wrap it up. You and I agree so often that when we disagree, I, I feel so guilty and I don't know why. It's, it, anytime, anytime we're like, cause even when we disagree, a lot of times it's sort of like, I kind of liked it more than you. And that's about as far as it goes. This is what I hated this movie. <laughs> I didn't like this movie like at all. Um, and it's funny when I put it on, I, this was not on my radar. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't watch a trailer. I, and I expected from the cover, um, something, uh, way way more low rent in a way like i thought it was going to be like an american dtv horror just just like bottom of the barrel and i popped it in and you have like these beautiful sweeping images of like these uh, wind turbines like out in the field and it's all golden mm -hmm. and i was like oh this is like shot like a real movie like this is <laughs> this is legit like this is not like like five dollar walmart bin garbage no and then and then it kept going <laughs> and uh you know, it's, it had this movie come out 15 years ago, maybe my reaction to it would be different. I really think that the, the milieu in which this film is working, which is the torture porn subgenre, um, feels very outdated. And it, this doesn't have anything new to add other than if, if you've, been dying to see some nipple torture on screen. There's some of that here for you. Um, but I really found this to be a, a kind of just a slog. I was never, you know, you, you talked about the suspense. I never felt that I, it was just an inevitable march towards whatever it was going to, whatever was going to be happening. And then what, what was happening, like the payoff for that was just, okay, here's your 20 minutes of girls screaming and crying and then it ends and it was just like uh, all right I, I this was not for me i did not <laughs> enjoy this movie there are some little there's some little creative flourishes like little um uh i don't want to say like fourth wall breaking but there's these little like he's he's live streaming the event and i guess they've got like a pay-per-view audience um and so there's little like graphic flourishes like he'll announce a new chapter of the show and and then they'll sort of like dress that with like a title card and some yeah. of that is kind of kind of cool and stylish and that's and and i do think that the two leads they're they're both capable good actresses mm -hmm. but overall this whole package is just that eh, yuck this is not for me <laughs> this is and and I, and I can take the torture porn stuff it's just i found it boring like yeah 
I mean, I guess that's for me. I didn't mind the torture porn aspect as much because it's only about 10 minutes of the entire film. Like, And I don't mean like nonstop torture porn. I mean, like the sequence is yeah. 10 minutes of the third act, really. And then the rest is like, now we're trying to escape. And I just thought that was all so run of the mill compared to the first two acts where I kind of liked the who who is going to done it. <laughs> mystery who's, who's gonna done it <laughs> yeah, i don't know it's like a who done it but we you know they haven't actually done it yet so mm-hmm. i don't know anyway that's the ringmaster we'll move on to also known as finale i don't did we say that yeah we did say that we did yes. say that okay uh we'll move on to the 80s or move back to the 80s to 1983's mortuary also known if you're in europe or somewhere else embalmed or hall of death this was directed by uh, Howard Avidas, who I did, uh, I don't know, nothing else really I can think of that was super notable here. But this film was notable for one reason and one reason only. It was one of the earliest performances of a young Bill Paxton playing this weirdly foppish mortuary owner's son there's a scene where he like goes skipping away into a in a graveyard that i was like wait i have to watch that again (laughs) did i just see what i thought i just saw it's so weird uh you know i don't eek i don't know how to describe a lot of the films of the 80s that people who really 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 are intense about horror films in the 80s just love almost by default because it was a horror movie in the 80s because people love mortuary and the next film after this we're talking about and it's fine, I guess. I mean, anyway, you tell. I've been telling the plots. You tell the plot of this one, John. Oh well, the plot of this one is there's this girl and her dad is murdered, and she suspects that it was done by the owner of the the mortuary in town. Who uh, the, uh, this is a roundabout way to tell it, but who, when the film opens, we learn is part of a cult. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she, everybody's telling her she's crazy and like gaslighting her and being like, no, 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 you don't know what you're talking about. And meanwhile, she's like, no, something's wrong with this guy. Like, I know this guy is weird and I know he had something to do with my dad's death. The audience knows that kind of from go as well. So it's just a matter of time before things are revealed. Um, Bill Paxton plays the mortuary owner's son who is obsessed with the lead, um, uh, romantically obsessed with the lead. Uh, and it's, you know, the cover sells a different movie than what this actually is. You have this grave, this tombstone with this hand extended, reaching from the dirt, almost like evil dead or something where it's just like, oh, this, I had been familiar with the box art for like decades. Oh yeah. The movie does not deliver on the box art. I had studiously avoided renting this film for, for decades of going, nah, <laughs> that doesn't look like I'd like that. So was this the first time you saw it? Yeah. Oh yeah. I think. I mean, I think right because there's periods in my life I just would walk out of video stores with like a fucking giant bag full of movies and watch uh, them all on a weekend. It's this movie's not remotely scary. I think it's no. you know it's got a little bit of cult horror stuff in it with like you know killer cults, but ultimately you have a stalker that I, I could not get over the fact that the killer in this movie looks like the and and. It's David Gale's fault because he's the one that, or he's the one that borrowed it for his short film. But the incredibly slow murder with the inefficient weapon, 
Right, where right. that short film where the killer has the spoon and he's like whacking people. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. the killer design from that short is exactly inspired by Mortuary. Like it's the exact <laughs> same look. It's the pale white face makeup with the circles around the eyes and the red lips and like a big black hood. And right. I could not take him seriously at all. I just kept expecting him to pull a spoon out and start whacking people with the spoon. Um, I mean, isn't that part of the problem is that so much of this film is so slow that by the time it finally shows you something that's worth seeing in the last really 10 minutes or so, that's fun. That's super campy and ridiculous, but we've seen it before done better too. You know, it's just really who's doing it that's notable. I just, I don't know, man. I just, I can't think of anything about this that wasn't run of the mill other than it has some notable, somewhat notable actors like Mary yeah. Beth McDonough plays the lead who was, uh, known from being Aaron Walton on the Waltons. Um, uh, Christopher George, major American TV and film actor who was in just a shit ton of stuff is in here. Linda Day George's real life wife is in this. Um, uh, David Wallace. It's, I, there's a lot of faces. You're like, Oh, I, where do I know that person from? Well, if you watch TV in the seventies or eighties, you'll know a lot of the cast of, of this film. But I mean, I've seen much, much worse, but there's nothing really to recommend this either for me. Other than know. Bill Paxton. That's the Other one reason. Bill pa- you, watch it, on, you watch he, it for Bill Paxton and that's it. He's, he's not in it that much either. Mm, no. You know, he's like, uh, he's in it through the whole thing, but uh, you know, when he's on it, it's like, oh, there he, oh, there he goes. Okay. And he's funny when he's on it. You're like, he's oh, so that's. Green. He's so green <laughs> yeah. as an actor. And he's making some like real swing for the fences decisions where nobody yeah. else is that, <laughs> that it's, it's like an amusingly bad performance. Like you, you know, the actor he's going to become. So to see him swing so hard and miss so hard is, is delightful. But again, you're <laughs> right. It's only peppered through, uh, you might get, 30 seconds for every 10 to 15 minutes worth of other right. crap. Uh, the only bonus feature is an interview with the composer, which I thought was weird. 15 minutes long. There's trailers and then uh, a folded mini poster with the Blu-ray, but that's it. Um, yeah, I was not terribly impressed with Mortuary. And I'll be honest, John, despite the fact that the house on Sorority Row is often considered one of the best slasher films of its era, it is another film that we now have on Blu-ray to review that I had not previously seen, I think, that I went, what is the big deal? Why do you guys think this is so good? And I'm just kind of, I, I I was so baffled by the fact that it ranks so highly that I was tempted to watch it again just to try and figure out what it is that you guys like about this movie. So this is one of those movies to set up the, the plot of it. This is one of those movies where, you know, you have... It's like, I know what you did last summer. There's certain horror films that are sort of the accidental kill. Let's all keep this a secret kind of things. And mm. that's basically what, t- what this movie is. It's a movie where there is a sorority house mother who's kind of has a reputation for being cranky and demanding. And the sorority girls are all leaving. They're all graduating and leaving school. And they, instead of renting a bar for a big blowout, they decide they're going to have the blowout in the house. They don't tell the house mother. The house mother's like, I forbid it. There's no way you can't do it. They get in a big argument. The house mother ends up getting killed. And they're all like, oh gosh, well, let's all keep it a secret. Take care of the party and we'll deal with it after the party's over. And meanwhile, one by one, people who know the secret start turning up dead. And that's just, yeah. All killed with the cane of the house mother whose body is now missing. So is she really dead? Obviously, all these elements are super familiar throughout slasher films and giallo films and 
I, I'm just, I mean, this was, wait, when did this come out originally? It was uh, 1982. So it is pretty early for slasher films, and it may have predated a lot of the films I'm thinking about. But nonetheless, I there's so much stuff in here that just, even if they did it first, it's cliched to the point that it's ridiculous. Like at one point, the, the killer shows up wearing a clown outfit for no discernible reason. <laughs> it's like, really? <laughs> I wish it was slightly more stylish. I think there's a... Yeah. I, there's a kind of a, a late 70s, early 80s TV movie quality to both this and Mortuary, where it's sort oh, yeah. of just like point and shoot, you know, it's sort of that that make these movies a little flatter than they would be otherwise. Because I actually, I think I liked House and Sorority, I know I liked House and Sorority Row more than you, but I don't think that it's like remarkable. I just think I enjoyed it more. Like, I agree with everything you're saying. I'm like, yeah, 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 but I liked it more. So this this director, Mark Rosman, by the way, just a little bit of trivia more than anything, went on to direct a Cinderella story and The Perfect Man, the successful Disney films with Hilary Duff. They're still making Cinderella story movies, Chris. <laughs> well, that was they like just released a sequel. Like they they still they released a sequel to Cinderella story like a like just a week ago or two weeks that, ago. That was how popular that shit They're was. They're still that making guy's, movies, Cinderella this story dude, movies. This dude or his family are still getting residuals, I assume. Anyway, yeah, well, I, let me, I don't know. Let me ask you something. Between the two, if somebody right now, they were going to announce a remake between Mortuary or House on Sorority Row, which one would you rather see a remake of? Oh, I think Mortuary could make a pretty good movie because there's some interesting stuff that's going on in the background. I think the, the what you need to do is reveal who the killer actually is almost right from the get-go and spend more time with them and their strange like the way like um like Maniac, like the original film Maniac. Mm-hmm. I'd do it more like that where you're like really exploring the killer's mindset because the film is just a bunch of boring young people, you know, getting killed occasionally that are really annoying and have no good dialogue. But then there's the killer. So you get someone who's like a really talented but wacky actor to be the killer and like let them just, you know what? Chew all the scenery, go wild. (laughs) Which is easier to do when you know they're the killer ahead of time. Yeah. A house on Sorority Row, I'm like, what do you mean, what if someone remakes it? Hasn't it been remade like 30 (laughs) times, 40, 50 times? Yeah. Like, there's nothing about this we haven't seen a lot of times before. I don't get it. I really don't get why this is held up. I mean, certainly not by conventional critics, but by horror fans, this is considered to be like one of the better ones from this period. And I'm like, (laughs) no, it is the horror critics that are wrong. <laughs> to quote Principal Skinner, <laughs> I don't know. There's, there's like a lot. The, there's the only a lot face of I recognize too. I was going to say the only face I recognize is Harley Jane Kozak from Arachnophobia and Parenthood. Mm. Um, I didn't recognize any of the other actresses in it. Yeah, I don't think I did either. I mean, I'm looking. Catherine McNeil, Eileen Davidson, but, but both soap opera actor actresses. Lois Kelso Hunt. Yeah, I don't know. I I, I don't think I did either. I don't know. I I can't recommend this. But if you're already a fan, you like this kind of shit, there's like two different audio commentary tracks. There's an interview with uh, three of the stars of this film, with the director, with the composer, composers, I should say, two different composers. There's the original pre-credit sequence here, alternate ending storyboards. There's an alternate mono audio version with a retimed pre-credit sequence and then a bunch of trailers. 
I mean, they pack this full shit. It's just not a good movie, so I don't care. <laughs> I care. Do you? I care. I care. Oh. It was. I. I care. It was. Uh, it was not as. <laughs> it was not as bad as I thought it would be. See how deeply I care. <laughs> um, I didn't expect much from it, and I, I was not aware that it was necessarily beloved. I thought it told an, a very old story, but it told it well enough to keep my interest. I'm not over the moon about it, but I thought it was. I thought it was all right. Well, fair enough. Well, our next movie is the film that John Golson was most anticipating for this week's show. I actually, he had told me about it. He's like, have you heard of this movie? I was like, nope, never heard of it. And literally the next day in the mail, I got the Blu-ray sent to me of it. And I was like, huh, from one of the companies that just kind of sends me, puts out, they know I'm going to review horror shit if they send it, so they send it. This movie is called Skinned Deep. It originally came out in 2004. It's by director Gabe Bartolos, who is definitely best known as a special effects guy who worked on some really good movies like Brain Dead, for instance, a absolute classic. And he did work on Godzilla and the Leprechaun movies and the Cree Master films and the Basket Case films and the Giver and Darkman and Gremlins and From Beyond and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 and the Friday the 13th movies and a lot. But he only directed two films ever. And this was the first one in 2004, which really reminded me, did I say the name? Skinned Deep? Mm -hmm. uh, which really reminds me of this short film, and I wish I could remember, who because it turned out somebody famous did it, but John Hawks was in it and everything, and this little short film they made for the Texas band, The Butthole Surfers, where it was basically what if The Butthole Surfers starred in The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which, you know, if you know anything about that band, you know, they're completely insane and take lots of drugs, and so it would have been a very different movie. This is basically that. <laughs> this is what if some really insane people on who who really like psychedelic drugs, but not in a hippie sort of way, in a sort of Texas punk barbecue eating sort of way, decided to make a remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but then kind of forgot what they were doing halfway through and just went, fuck it, we'll just do that. That sounds like more fun anyway. With a weird, some weird casting, I mean, most notably in this film, uh, where I was like, wait, what? Why? Why is uh, a Warwick Davis one of the stars of this super low-budget, totally insane horror film i don't know man skin deep is is uh was an experience that i kind of treasured and i'm glad you pointed me at it john um but i'm curious to know because i know you were anticipating it whether or not it had the same positive effect on you that it did for me but go ahead and uh, tell the plot of this one as uh, and good luck oh gosh there's <laughs> a family that are on vacation and they oh they stop at a store uh, I, can't, I can't even remember what they're asking for, directions or something. They stop at a store anyways. The old lady's like, oh, you should stop by my house. They stop by her house, and her family is consists of, uh, you know, she's the matriarch. There's a character called uh, the Surgeon General who sort of looks like Trapjaw from He-Man. He's got like a metal uh, bear trap mouth and like steampunk goggles and stuff. Um, there's plates which is the Warwick Davis character, who is a, uh, a sort of a poet philosopher who loves plates as a weapon. <laughs> There's the brain, uh, AKA Brian, who I guess people mispronounce his name because of his gigantic, uh, you know, pulsating brain that, that exists in a three foot radius around his head. Am I missing a family member here? Um, uh, well, I mean, the, the th that's creator. the core. That's the core, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, uh, 
And then, you know, and then it becomes, it does become kind of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But imagine if Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a little bit more day in the life and not so much like telling the story of a survivor from point A to point B to point C and then like the survivor escapes in the movie ends. This is almost like you get lots of little vignettes that's sort of like, and now the family decides to attack some bikers. And now the yeah. family decides to like play chicken out on the highway. And now the family decides to do this. And so the, there, there's all these little like contained family experiences as opposed, <laughs> as opposed to like one longer beginning to end narrative. There is sort of a through line with they decide to keep the girl and Brian, aka the brain, um, falls in love with her and she keeps promising him like, Oh, I'll like you help me and I'll get you out of here and we'll be together forever. And so there's like a weird kind of manipulative romantic through line through the thing. Um, you know, this is, if, if you've got a place in your heart for very early Peter Jackson, I'm talking like bad taste, meet the feebles yeah. or, or Frank Hindenlotter again, no, I was going to say damage. Who was uh, an executive yeah. producer on this? I believe. Yeah. Um, you're talking like basket case and stuff like that. I, th- I was, <sighs> there were parts of skin deep where it was exactly what I wanted, what I was hoping it would be. There's some actually pretty remarkable special effects work in it as oh, yeah. well. I mean, some of the special effects do look like really cheap and dirty, but if you like your movies like street trash or slime city, things like that. This is definitely in that vein as well, where it's like very lo-fi bright green goop spurting kind of pulsating rubber sort of horror. Um, But there's also like some pretty good digital work as well. There's a character later on in the film. That's a muscle man with no head who looks freaking fantastic. Like it literally looks like a muscle man with no head. Like there's, it's a seamless special effect. It's so good. Um, the, ultimately, I think what this movie was, it was just, it was just monotonous. And, and if there's, if it kept me from falling in love with it, because there were a lot of individual things that were hitting a sweet spot of like who I was as a film geek in the nineties when I was seeking out this kind of stuff. And that's why when I saw the trailer for it, I was so excited because I was like, I haven't seen a movie like this, nor did I know that there was an undiscovered one. Like, I didn't know that there was another one that wasn't on my radar from, like, back in the late 90s. Well, of course, it came right. out in 2004, so it was kind of after I'd moved on. But this I would have this would have been something that I would have rented with friends and we would have laughed, like, all night long. There's a streaking scene in here that's, like, <laughs> it's a fantastic streaking scene in here. Um, the uh, But ultimately, I found it just to be kind of one note played too loud, too long. And it, the, the films have to modulate films have to have ups and downs and peaks and valleys and skin deep kind of like stays at a level and then stays at that level for like an hour and 40 minutes. And by the end, it's a little numbing to be quite honest. And, and that probably kept me from, from really having like a deep, deep affection for the film. Do we, do we, this is a weird question. Do we know Gabe Bartalis? I don't. He so? looks so familiar, but maybe I've seen him in other special features, but I was watching yeah. the special features on this and I was like, do I know that guy? <laughs> I, I thought the same thing. I was like, I feel like well, it's quite possible he was at like Fantastic Fest or something one year. Maybe and so. And I shot out. the shit with him. Like I, it, it could be, I don't know. 
But um, yeah, you mentioned special features. There are several special features on here, but most notably, it, they they go into the background of like the film and how it got made, and they talk about the director's other film that he made that I'm forgetting the name of. Saint Bernard. Right now. Saint Bernard, which mm-hmm. looks equally crazy and shares several of the same cast members from this one. You know, John, this all the movies you were listing. I'm like, yeah. I love that. I love that one too. I love that one too. So I'm like, oh, this is totally me. This is like street trash, bad taste, uh, bas- the basket case sequels. I'm like, oh, this has me written all over it. And sure enough, I loved it. I think there's only one thing I would change with this is that I would rescore it. I'd go like, you know what we should do? We should take somebody like the Bottle Surfers or some other kind of crazy hard edged band and let them and put their songs in the soundtrack really loud. Like the, the only, can you imagine watching Maximum Overdrive without ACDC, right? You'd be like, fuck this movie. This movie needs some bottle surfers really loud. <laughs> Instead, just somebody it. going, meow, meow. <laughs> yeah. Which I exactly. think what the score to this is, right? It's just somebody right. like holding down keys on a synthesizer. Pretty much. Pretty much. But th- okay. this movie just keeps up with the weird new shit it introduces. Like you were saying, the aforementioned uh, headless guy. I was like, what is that? <laughs> when it happens. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just started laughing. There's the Warwick Davis, as you said, plates, because his whole thing is he's obsessed with like regular dinner plates and he's got like a, a sheath on his back that he keeps so he can have a stock of plates to like throw at people, which he does more or less effectively. And Davis is just playing it so over the top, like just extremely. Like they're like, just do whatever you want. Picture, I think in the special features, like picture a guy who like literally is about to overdose on caffeine. Who's like at that point, <laughs> like okay, I can do that, and that's what he does. And I thought he was a riot. Uh, I don't know. I enjoyed it a lot more. You did. I'm sorry that you were the one who was excited for it, and I was just like, "What's this shit?" And then loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you loved it. I, I honestly am. I, I. I'll probably go back to it in a few years. Out of everything on this list, it might be the only thing that I, I will that I can pretty much guarantee I'll purposefully rewatch. Um, but yeah, I just yeah, that's fair. I, I just wish it modulated a little more, just a little more. Well, our next one is another one that, and like I say, a lot of times we get these little low budget ones I've never heard of. Like we've had several on this list so far, uh, like the ringmaster 10 minutes to midnight. Like, as I said, I, to one degree or another, enjoyed both of those skin deep. I really enjoyed and this next one is another one I really enjoyed that I'd never heard of, but originally it came out in 2018. It's just getting a DVD re-release now. It's called incarnation. Uh, it's, and it's, I, I don't think you, you can't watch this and not think, oh, Nacho Vigalando's movie Time Crimes, which was kind of the, oh, yeah, make a short, low budget, like high concept thing that but that's made for very little money and find something clever and new to do with it. And that's kind of what Incarnation is doing. Um, certainly, there have been other films that come to mind as well. But I was surprised. It starts off with this guy who wakes up on a bench. And four guys with kind of plain white masks show up and kill him. And then he wakes up again. So it's like, oh, it's a Groundhog's Day thing, right? Except it's more than that. He's stuck in this loop. And no matter what he does, like, they kill him. And he's got to figure out, well, what the, who am I? What am I doing here? And why do these guys keep fucking killing me? Who are they? It was filmed in a place in, in, in Serbia by Serbian directors and writers. And up until the end, I was kind of like, this is really clever what they're doing here. It's a, invo- you're like, wow. I mean, we've seen the Groundhog's Day 
you know, live, die, repeat thing, certainly in many different films and TV shows, but they found something kind of new to do with it here that's pretty gripping. But I thought towards the end, it kind of started treading on what kind of tired, more familiar elements. And I don't think they ever really had a good way to wrap it up, which is a shame because I think three quarters of this is quite good. I think film critics often will say uh, that should have been a short film. This is where my Space Jam comparison comes in. <laughs> um, this film is is pretty much 100% premise. And it's hard to sustain if you don't have anything else in your film but the premise. Yeah. And, you know, Space Jam, the original Space Jam, haven't seen the new one, can't speak to it. Maybe I'll love it. But the original Space Jam, the thing I remember about it was that it was all premise. What if Bugs Bunny played basketball with uh, Michael Jordan? And then there was like nothing else. Like it was just the hook. And this movie to me is sort of just the hook. Like it's just the, the time travel stuff and the particular, and then the particular reveal. So everything is written towards the reveal, but there's not really any characterization. There's not really anything else going on in the plot. And that is where to me, I go, this should have been a short film because it's like, if all you have is the premise, then operate on that premise and tell the story with with just the premise that's going to be a fantastic short film you can get in and out with that premise in 10 to 10 to 20 minutes and have people go what a great short if you have people sit down in an hour and what is this an hour and 22 minutes an hour and a half not to fault a running time but it's just like you don't have enough story there's not enough mm. there's not enough meat here there's not it doesn't even i mean you can keep the same story but like who are these people what is who's what is this guy's world what's his personality what motivates him like there's things like that that i just felt like characterization wise it it's really really bare bones it's well made enough um it actually it reminded me too the way that the there's a like there is almost a to call something a student film a lot of times it's an insult but there's also a flex that really good student filmmakers have where it's like they kind of a good student filmmaker will still flex visually, but it's not at the level of like someone who's working on a higher level. So you can watch a student film and be like, that's really good. This had the look and feel of that as well, where the way the it's just, it has, I, I don't, it's hard to articulate. It's just the way that the story is visually told felt restricted by experience <laughs> as well, which is not to mean that it doesn't have flourishes because again, you can still have stylistic flourishes and still feel like you're green within the context of the movie that you're making. Those are difficult concepts to articulate, especially to an audience who hasn't seen the film. Yeah. So it's hard for me to talk through it that way. But, but again, I think what it comes down to at its core level for me, this was, this was just premise. And as such left me, left me pretty cold. I don't disagree. I think, Though I didn't really know that I felt that way till it was over. You know, mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I'm with this. I like where the, uh, there's a lot of questions that I have and the movie is clearly moving towards answering them. And like, I think it was, you're right. It's just a guy who's like, this is such a cool idea. And I like the visuals that go with this idea, but that was all he had. And he didn't even care really how, whether or not the ending was any good. Cause it's not, it's not a good or clever ending. It's just like, oh, that was it. Okay. 
Um, I feel like if you're going to do a film that's all premise like this, hey, I mean, sure, an hour and 22 minutes is short, but you're right. It should have been even shorter. <laughs> like they, I think as long as it's over an hour, it's technically a movie and not a short film. So maybe a, a hour and one minute would have been the way to go with this one. Uh, yeah, not, not totally crazy for this, but a cool idea, cool enough of an idea and well shot enough that I would totally watch something else by this director for sure. Mm, I'll uh, so, that up. Yeah. So you did not watch this next one I'm going to talk about, but I, I, it's time that I've got to talk about it because none of you rescue digital noise guys are watching his dark materials. And maybe that's because you didn't have parents like I do that forced them to read the books who were like, and I know you're like, Chris, you're like 51. Why how'd your parents force you to read the books? I would come visit and they would put books that they had enjoyed next to my bedside table in the guest room and remove all the other books from the room. So that would have the other thing. And then like, lock the door. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, no, I mean, that's how I read Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't going to read Harry Potter. They were like, when the first two books were out, they're like, oh, you're reading Harry Potter. We liked it. So same thing with the Philip Pullman series. And I did like it. It's high fantasy but from the viewpoint of atheists who are like man fuck organized religion and i'm like okay i can get with this so can i can i ask some questions because i've read uh, the book and i've i've seen most of season 1 okay and and many people have probably seen golden compass who are listening and yeah, and, uh, you, and honestly the first season is a super extended version of the golden compass and okay. season 2 is the second book the subtle okay. night so then i assume then that golden compass which shied away from the fact and withdrew when it came time to address the fact that the whole purpose of this was they were going to build a bridge to god and kill him mm -hmm. and that's removed from the golden compass film like the whole impetus of the whole series is taken out of the first movie I'm assuming yeah. the Golden Compass TV series ends with that laid bare, and so the second season becomes about finding the subtle knife, which is the thing that can stab God. I mean, no. No. Okay. They do, in fact, find another way to do it, because <sighs> this is more about, which they established towards the end of the first season, that there's multiple Earths, there's parallel worlds, tons and tons of them. And that that's where her father escaped to another world. And this, so the second season is really about exploring that idea, what happened to her father, what happened to other characters who they introduce in here with their parentage. Why are they there? Exploring the bad guys who largely in here are sort of shades of gray bad guys. They're like, you're never really a hundred thousand percent sure what some of these characters goals are like ruth wilson marisa coulter who is turns out to be the lead character lyra played by daphne keen her mother so she does definitely want to be her mom and she doesn't want to kill her but she also seems to be working both for the evil catholic stand-in group the magisterium but also is also working against them it's very unclear but the second season spend more time where they're exploring parallel worlds and in this the subtle knife is a knife that can literally kind of open doors between dimensions you can like mm -hmm. split open a tear in the world and go between it to go to another world and a lot of it they spend in this little italian looking mountainside town that is apparently is supposed to be a parallel earth but all the humans have totally disappeared because something happened that somehow involves the knife that called in a bunch of what do they call the ghostly judgment creatures from Harry Potter? I forget what they call those things, but basically those uh, who come in and any adults, they like whisk away to, and then oh, when they appear, eaters. I could yeah, sit here trying to think. So when they death appear, they're, they come back to like, they're, they're, if they're even there at all, their souls are gone. They have no personality. They're just basically dead. So it's only kids. And every time a kid gets old enough, 
whoosh, one of them comes down and gets it. Anyway, I, it also gets into a whole thing with like where they, they finally, these characters visit our earth, which is also in the book, I believe. It's been a long time since I read it these is. books. Yeah. Um, and they meet a scientist who's studying dark matter. And so they kind of and say, okay, so the stuff that everybody talks about in the fantasy universe here, dust, which is sort of the active magic shit that makes things happen and dark matter are one and the same thing. And there's stuff about like, Oh, we can talk to dark matter. I don't know. It gets a little silly, but it's certainly a better translation of this original story than the movie, the golden compass was. And maybe they'll get more sacrilegious in the third season. They definitely have been dodging around a lot of the more extreme stuff. But if I remember correctly, the most extreme stuff doesn't even happen until the third book. Right. But I, I think you have to like the groundwork for it is certainly laid in the first one. So to, so Mm -hmm. I'm curious how they yeah. how do you get there without providing that path you know what i mean I, and for me it's one of the reasons i like the original series because wow you guys got some balls on you making a children's book series or a ya series i guess that is just fervently you can't trust organized religion do you know the origin of it no pullman w- read the c.s lewis narnia books and got mad um specifically got mad about the plot point where Lucy, I believe the character's name is Lucy, isn't allowed to enter Narnia because she disobeyed like one rule, despite the fact that she had lived her life in defense of and in in support of Narnia. There was like one specific thing that she broke, so she couldn't enter Narnia. And it was the allegory of like, you know, that her sin kept her from entering heaven. And it made Philip Pullman so angry that he was like, this is bullshit. (laughs) And then wrote Basically, the His Dark Materials, not the the first three His Dark Materials novels, as a response to the fiction of C.S. Lewis, um, makes sense. So it, yeah, make, yeah, they, that that logically follows. And yeah, I'd like to remind all of you out there who might be like, well, that's just offensive to me, like a book for kids that's like exploring atheism. Go fuck yourself quite frankly, because Narnia was all straight up an advertisement for Christianity. And if you have one problem with one and not with the other, oh, you're the bad guy in this equation. I'm okay with C.S. Lewis's Narnia series. Like, I mean, yeah, it's got, I liked it when I was growing up. It's got a Christian allegory. I don't have a problem with that. I didn't find it particularly preachy outside of the metaphor there. Whatever, man, like you I guess you teach what you want your your children to learn or at least experience to some degree. And for me, I would rather give them his dark materials than the Chronicles of Narnia. That's me. I don't know what to tell you. Anyway, there's a lot of bonus experience, uh, experiences, bonus material here, which is odd because the HBO releases lately have not had a lot of stuff for the home releases. I think largely because they're more and more trying to sell you on getting HBO, but yeah, there's examining almost every aspect of this season, like stuff that's a little past EPK, you know, a little better than that. Not super long, but still like between 12 and, and, and four minute pieces. Um, and some fun stuff with Lin, uh, Ruth Wilson and Lynn Manuel Miranda having fun with their characters. Um, and then specifically a segment on the subtle knife, which gets into the comparisons with the, the, the book version, but yeah, I really, really like this uh, overall. I wish it was still better than it is. It's one of those like, God, this feels like it should be a little bit better, but it's still engaging. And if you've read the books, you should definitely watch the HBO series. It's very expensively produced. It looks great. 
So I recommended it for no other reason on that level. But let's move on to some martial arts with Silent Warriors Deed of Death, which is a terrible name. Just awful. <laughs> I mean, it's, um, it's Southeast Asia. Silent, uh, I guess, is more of a generic term for martial arts that are Southeast Asian. It's not really even referring to any specific one really here. But apparently one of the criticism of people who know more about this stuff than me is that they weren't even really using a strict, strict Southeast Asian style of martial arts in this film. And when there is martial arts, it doesn't even really happen until the third act. The first two acts of this are kind of a family dynamic drama with this like group of people, daughter and sons and the mom and dad, uh, who, and the son is like, you know, he, he behaves badly and he's getting in trouble for gambling and shit and he's got people after him and it ends up with, you know, everybody having to come together and fight to save the son from his own bullshit. And uh, there's some decent fights in the third act. I thought that were, I mean, they're okay, but they do the, the thing I absolutely hate. I think it, it, it should be pointed out anytime a film does it that you should point the finger and go, no, bad film, is that every fight is so clearly overcranked. They, like, speed it up to get more of an effect, and it looks terrible. That always looks terrible. Every fucking time. If you can't do a fight and make it look good without overcranking, maybe you shouldn't be making a martial arts film. Yeah, I I don't know that I, like, found... <laughs> you know, you kind of wait through these so that you can get to, like the the action you know it's mm. sort of like yeah 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 you're you're it's not filler but a lot of these movies it's sort of just like okay story and now action and now story mm. and now action you know and then you have like a big finale mm-hmm. and this one is sort of like there's some street racing stuff kind of at the beginning with some fight scene stuff really most of the fight fighting stuff is left at the end if you're watching this i think strictly for the fighting like you would like say like a Marin tower or something like that. It's like not on that level. I think the, the thing I liked about this movie the most, and it was the thing that like disarmed me is it feels like you get the vibe. So, so far I've compared a Serbian sci-fi drama to space jam. And I'm about to compare this martial arts movie to Kevin Smith, but you get this vibe that you get from the Kevin Smith movies that like, everybody's kind of like friends and having fun. There's like Mm -hmm. kind of a weird hangout feel to this movie, you know, shot in this like small Malaysian village. Um, It's very, it kind of wears its spirituality on its sleeve as well in regards to like how it, treats morality and the things that they talk about. They talk about spiritualism in the movie as well. It kind of wears that on its sleeve. And then the vibe you get from the actors is this very comfortable, familiar, relaxed feel um, that gives the movie like a little bit of a different energy than some of its peers. Now it can't match some of its peers in regards to the actual fighting, but there was some kind of a vibe that I dug about this. And I do think it was sort of just the, the hangout spirit. Like you're literally watching some guys that know each other that have nice cars and like to play fight, get together and write a story around that. <laughs> That's what it felt like to me. 
So it felt like if the people from the first Fast and the Furious movie were real people <laughs> and they were like, instead of going on to James Bond type adventures, yeah. they were like, you know what we should do? We, we should, should make our own action movie. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't see that, but I, I, I wish, I, I wish I was in your brain for that. I, I found this very low budget, very cheap looking. The martial arts are bad. The acting at points is so bad. It's laughable. Like, like really just the flattest acting I've seen, even in like a third world action movie. <laughs> uh, I just can't think of anything to really recommend this other than, like I said, towards the very end, there's one guy who comes in who's like the brother who seems to be the one guy who actually knows how to fight in this whole thing. And they don't even let him come in till the last 15 minutes and fight anybody. You're like, Oh, that guy actually knows how to fight. But the problem is he's the guy who can't act at all. (laughs) (laughs) You take what you can get. (laughs) That may be why he wasn't on screen as much, because the other brother who they let fight more is like, actually can kind of act, but he's not a very good fighter. Anyway, we'll move on to... Yeah, I seriously considered not even trying to watch these movies because they were sent to me with Unbidden, and I'm like, I don't really like the whole... You know, I was never a big fan of Rambo First Blood, which is definitely the one that was the the big cultural game changer. Although First Blood is an excellent movie, uh, but or, or you know the original Rambo film, but but the sequel, First Blood Part Two, is trashy '80s flag waving nonsense for my money. That was where I sat on it. And there were, much like there was with Alien and Jaws, any movie that was that big of a cultural shift thing, there's a billion fucking low-budget imitators. And the Strike Commando movies were two of the, oh, what a shocker, Italian, (laughs) like, taking advantage of the Rambo phenomenon film of, like, Lone Soldier, uh, who's left on his own in in, uh, the jungle and finds out that his military superiors aren't what they actually say they are and have been lying to him and... I cannot say that I was a fan of either one of these films, but it's funny to me that Strike Commando 1 is generally thought of being the better film. And I'll say this, Strike Commando 1 is definitely more of a discernible, we were trying to make a good film film. And the second one is more like, ah, fuck it. And that's why the second one is more enjoyable, because weirdly about... 20 minutes in, they're like, you remember how this started as a Rambo movie? Well, now we're just flat out remaking Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> yes. Super low budget. Like, scene for scene at points. Mm-hmm. I was like, what am I seeing here? Yeah. It, it's not even... It's just completely <laughs> naked about it. Yeah. It feels like I have aged f- like five or six years since I've watched these. This is <laughs> We're recording this on literally the third Saturday since I received these. And I watched these last what last weekend. I watched I watched Strike Commando one and two on Saturday. It feels like a lifetime ago. And when you were putting these like so some behind the scenes inside baseball, Chris sends me a list, and the list is like, hey, here's the order that we're going to talk about stuff. You know, make sure you know. And often it's a it's a good chance for me as well to double check and make sure that I've seen everything. And I and I was looking at the stuff on the list, and I'm just like, man, Strike Commando. 
do I even remember anything about Strike Commando? And I'm thinking, like, <laughs> that was a week ago, John. Like, that was literally seven <laughs> days ago. And I'm just like, my I'm brain already. has flushed it so quickly. Just immediate, like, watched it, and my brain went, okay, we need this room for other things. Like, yes. you're going to need the space in your brain to operate as a human. So Strike Commando and Strike Commando 2 got to go. They got to go. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. Uh, hey, um, these are crappy. Um Yeah. Strike Commando 2 has some unintentional comedy at the very, very end. I mean, excuse me, Strike Commando 1 has some unintentional comedy at the very, very end. Strike Commando 2 probably has a better distribution of unintentional comedy from start to finish, although nothing in it is as particularly as amusing as the very finale when the Russian guy falls off the cliff and goes, Americana, or whatever he says. <laughs> he like, oh, Americanski. He says Americanski. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah, th- these are these are bad. You know who you are if these are like, ooh, you're rubbing your hands in glee at the release of Bruno Mattei's Strike Commando 1 and 2. Like, you know who yeah. you are. If you're not that person, there's, there's literally no, reason, no reason for you to ever watch these two I mean, I, I do think 2 is, like, ridiculous enough that, like, I could see, like, a, you know, a, a satire, professional comedy satire group taking it on, like, like Master Pancake Theater or Rift Tracks, because it's just... Wow, shameless enough about the Raiders of Lost Ark stuff, and it's just g- ridiculously goofy enough, and it stars Richard Harris as one of the main characters in it, like the legendary Richard Harris, and uh, one of his uh most yes, I'll take that paycheck films, and he had many. Quite a disappointment but- though, because I I tell you what, going into Strike Commando two, if you've seen Richard Harris in a bad movie like Tarzan the Ape Man. He goes balls to the wall, Richard Harris. Like, he's so incredibly over the top that every scene that he's in is, like, it's one of those, he can be one of those, like, gonzo, holy shit type performers when he's got a full drunk on and the movie's bad enough. He's he's awful. And I was expecting that Richard Harris, so I was rubbing, I was like, yeah, we're going to get, we're going to get the, the Tarzan, the ape man, Richard Harris and strike commando too. And I found him actually fairly subdued. Yeah. He's very <laughs> restrained in this, which is you're like, wait, and, and this is the movie you decided to like go method on. I don't know. Um, there's a s- certain amount of bonus features here. There's the first one as War Machine, an interview with Claudio Fergasso, who was listed as the co-director, but he's identified on the cover as the co-writer. Um, but he tells anecdotes about the making of the film. There's All Quiet on the Philippine Front for 13 minutes with the interview with the writer Rosella Drudy. Uh, there's Strike Commando in production trailer. Then uh, this also has an extended cut, which is an hour and 42 minutes, or the theatrical cut at an hour and 31 minutes. I made the mistake of watching the extended cut. As well, Strike Commando 2 has an extended cut at hour 36, and the theatrical cut as hour 30. I did not make the same mistake and stuck with the theatrical cut on that one. That has a 16 and three-quarter minute Gorilla Zone interview that continues on with the director, uh, co-director slash co-writer Claudio Fergasso from the first one. There's Michael Ransom strikes back for about 14 and a half minutes with an interview with Brent Huff, who uh, took over the lead role from the actor in the first one here and basically is just laughing about like, well, paid for a free visit to the Philippines. So, I mean, much like every movie I ever signed on to, it was because, ooh, what country do I get to visit if I sign up for this one? It's basically him making that joke, which I'm like, I get it. That's fine. I mean, like Michael Caine said, I may not have seen the movie Jaws 4 that I starred in, but I saw the yacht that it paid for. So, 
<laughs> it is what it is. We're going to go to our final movie, which I think is one of much better quality than any of the previous ones we've talked. I don't even have to say I think. I know it is. And that is A Quiet Place Part 2, the follow-up to 2018's A Quiet Place that was directed again by John Krasinski, starring Emily Blunt, Millicent Simmons, and Noah Jupe, again, reprising their roles from the first film. And even John Krasinski reprising his role. No, it didn't do something stupid like, he didn't actually die! It flashes back in the beginning to go, here's how all this started, because we never saw it, and plus, everybody wants to see John Krasinski on film again for a little bit. You know, he had always said, I didn't really have any plan to make this a franchise, it was just a one and done, but he couldn't stop thinking about it after it was over. Finally came up with this idea. I was worried about it, because nothing is nothing is worse than a sequel that just totally ruins the first movie, but I... We've done a full review on the site, so you can listen to the full 20 and some minute odd minutes Screener Squad review in there if you want to hear more about the plot of this one. But I thought this was a thoroughly satisfying sequel that was as good as the first movie in every way except we already know the premise. So the surprise, the slow build of surprises isn't there. You know, I mean, it's still, okay, it's more of that. But I think he did a great job on building in some new characters like Cillian Murphy, who comes in here, and... uh as well, adding new elements to things we learn about these monsters. But the most important thing is that something I didn't think that would work, but they took Millicent Simmons, who is just a little girl. I think she's like 12 or 13 and made her basically the lead character of this entire movie. The movie follows her and she gives an incredibly strong performance. And she really is. Wow. Yeah. I would watch another movie that was following her in, in this role. Anyway, that's my feeling about it. I thought this was great. I don't know. I have no idea what John thought about this or even the first. I don't know how you thought about the first one, even. I thought the first one was good. Uh, I think I, it's this movie has some weird serendipitous timing elements to it that are really fascinating from like a cultural conversation standpoint, because you have this movie about uh, a society that is isolated and separate from each other. Um and you have this concept of there's a there's a part where uh, and I'll try to avoid spoilers where uh, Millicent as Reagan um, sees people interacting for the for the first time and staggers like like she has like the cognitive dissonance of this is not something I've seen in such a long time that it actually makes me go whoa. And I think many of us have come out of lockdown and quarantine and stuff and had similar feelings of like, oh, this is what it was like. Like, this is weird. And it's crazy to me that a film has a moment like that that was made pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. That to me is just could not be timed better. And there's a few moments in A Quiet Place too that are like five-star moments. I think that's one of them. There's some other ones as well. Most of them involve uh, the the Reagan character, Millicent Simmons, Reagan character. Some true, like, like great, great, great moments. In the service of a script that I honestly thought was kind of a two-star script, like, there's, there's a lot of stuff in the first movie that I heard people complain about from a logic and world-building standpoint that I kind of shrugged off because I didn't really care. Like why? Well, like a big one being, why would you even have a baby in this world? Well, that it, that's, you're not these characters. So that doesn't matter. Right. That, that's but not the whole even thing logic. about like <laughs> the whole thing about like trying to figure out like how sounds work and things like that. This movie 
played a little too loose with some of those things. There were a lot of a lot of parts where I'm just like, oh, but that's not how babies work, or but that's <laughs> not how sound works, or like there's a scene where she's walking outside and the sound mix is crazy because it's like there's cicadas and they cover, they blanket the soundtrack, and I'm like, what's the alien's reaction to just a cacophony of insects? Or the part where Emily Blunt hides by turning on a sprinkler. Wouldn't that cause sound? Wouldn't they hear the sound of the sprinkler, but the alien never turns its head? There's a I, lot I, of I, like odd odd things like that that were kind of just like every ten minutes or so that would be something like, wait, don't they have to feed the child? Like <laughs> little things like that where I'm just like that like the logic of the world was way more wobbly this time. I, I was I was mostly unsatisfied by it, and it's a real shame because I do feel like the moments that it hits, oh, God, it hits them so hard. Like, there's some great, great parts of this thing that all together uh, suffers from a little bit of sequelitis, in my opinion. There's a lot of stuff, world-building stuff, that probably wasn't fully thought out because it didn't need to be for the first film to tell its story. And here as they expand it, suddenly it has to be fleshed out a little bit more. More rules have to be created, kind of, and it's like they kind of aren't. And so, uh, you know, it was stuff like that that kind of... I would go from something that had me sort of asking too many questions to then something that was, like, blowing me away. And that was kind of the rhythm of the whole movie all the way through it for me. You know, I... I, I don't have any problem with the, the difference with the monsters. What do they react to? What they don't? Because I assume it's, I mean, they're obviously not completely stupid. They're, they're like probably dog smart or maybe even pig smart, right? But they would know after a while, okay, that's nothing. And they just kind of tune it out. Like they do in the waterfall with the waterfall in the first movie. This waterfall is constantly pouring, but they're not always like running at the waterfall because they learn that's nothing. <laughs> they, that's Chris, not, they that slap sound people. when you hear that is not a thing. All they do is slap, <laughs> they slap the, crap out of people like the attacks yeah. in the first one that were more varied i guess or we didn't know what they would do and in this one they kind of just are constantly like slapping people like they the monster <laughs> will like run up and he's not like eating you he's going like slap 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 and i was going <laughs> how come they don't like just stop drop like you can't get slapped and you can't make sound if you just fall flat and people were still like running and screaming and it's like right. even even later like, I get it in the opening when they don't know what these things are, but even later in the film when it's like, it's established that there's people that know what they are and what the rules are. Like, the minute you see one, drop f as flat as you can, it can't slap you, and you won't make any noise. <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. I think, I feel like, I get it, but there's a point of like, that's overthinking it to me. But yeah, I hear you. The only thing that I think is the albatross here is the baby, which I think was always a mistake. I think, and I, I don't think it was a logical issue in the first movie, but it never stopped annoying you. Mm -hmm. You're like, you know what? I like this family in every way, except they made the really fucking stupid decision to have a baby during this. Like, what were you fucking thinking? And it's never addressed. And you're like, gah. And you're like, I, I like you like 50% less because you did this because of how stupid it is. But this, this one, 
it's like, ah, shit, we got to deal with them having a baby. Why didn't we kill the baby at the end of the last one? That would have made life easier. And they come up with weird shit to kind of like mute the baby that you're like, yeah, I don't think, I think that baby would just die, right? That would just not, that would just kill that baby. Like her, her going off on like a sojourn all day. Like she goes and leaves all day long to go like trek back to some, you know, I'm not going to ruin the moment, but she, but the mom leaves. It just leaves the baby in the baby's little box. And I'm like, babies yeah. have to like eat. They have to eat. Like <laughs> they have to eat often. Like I've seen a baby. They eat every yeah. hour. Like they, you can't yeah. just, you can't just leave it and go all day. Like, especially not for, <laughs> especially not for the reason she was leaving, which was not in, of anything yeah. of, of, it was for emotional importance, but it wasn't for anything survival importance. And it's like, wait, right. are you literally going to starve your baby all day so that you can go do this? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I like I said, I, despite like things that only bother you if you think a lot about them. <laughs> I found this much more fast moving than the first one, oh, God. Uh, and and really exciting action and incredibly well made special effects. And more than anything, it begs the question. Why haven't you guys done Aliens Earth War? I don't, nobody gives a shit about the fucking origin of the aliens from ancient times and what that has to do with whether or not God is real. I want to see like, oh shit, someone snuck a bunch of eggs to Earth and now there's millions of these goddamn things running around killing people on the planet. That's what we've been wanting to see since you promised it for the third fucking movie and you lied. You lied that teaser trailer still exists out there it's on the internet you can find it for aliens earth war ah anyway this just reminds me we could do that now it would look fantastic do the do the thing and if you're look, you're like wow i wonder what that'd be like this is as close as we've gotten quite frankly and we get to see a lot of that like before it was like one family versus these things now there's scenes of total carnage of people dying left and right and Lots the of people wow, slapped. wow coming up and slapping the shit out of me <laughs> anyway so there's a certain amount of bonus features here they're all like epks but the one good one is director's diary which is nominated which is uh, narrated by john krasinski himself which is kind of interesting and you really get like it translates that krasinski as an actor warmth into him as a director warmth and you're like oh i want to work for john krasinski anyway, you know how it took um, a while for aliens to get the name xenomorph like uh-huh. it, we weren't calling them xenomorphs until like a little bit later, you know, alien had been out for a while before anybody was like, that's a xenomorph. I, I'm going to christen these aliens. They're the backhanders. <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> there's, you know, the, there's the xenomorphs, there's predators, there's backhanders. That's what these are. They just backhand you. I thought they were just handy capable. <laughs> <laughs> They've oh. adjusted well to their, their, their blindness is all I'm saying. They're like daredevil. They're Except they slap people more. Slap happy. <laughs> slap right. happy and slap happy too. That's the new titles of these films. I, I got to know what we're at the end. So what is the one? I, I have no idea what you're going to pick for your pick of the week here. I do not I, love anything. Because <laughs> I, I would pick A Quiet Place Part 2 or Skin Deep if for no other reason. I mean, they're both. Skin Deep is super niche but it's my niche. And A Quiet Place Part 2, I think, is just genuinely a great movie, despite not really having a great bonus features. I mean, it's on 4K. It looks and sounds terrific on 4K, I guess. I I think if you're going to watch anything right now, do A Quiet Place 2, because some of those things that relate to our experiences as our our national experiences those aren't going to hit as hard five years from now six years from now so don't put off a quiet place too it's not my pick of the week but uh, it was 
It was one I'm glad I watched it now while that stuff still resonated. Even though it wasn't intended to resonate, it still resonated. Um, I think for me, I started the show thinking that I would say House on Sorority Row, but I think you talked me out of it. (laughs) And I think I'm going to go ahead and give it to Skinned Deep. Um, wow. Okay. As the pick of the week, even though <laughs> it is a movie that I know that younger me would have loved unabashedly. So even if 45 year old me sits here and is like, it's okay. I can tell you for a fact, I know that 25 year old me would have been all about skin deep. So I'm going to give it to skin deep. I think house of sorority row is a nice little package. If you're a fan of that film, but it's, you know, it is what it is. I'm not going to oversell it as I, I don't, I don't think it is a, uh, an underappreciated classic. I think it's a mediocre slasher movie, but, uh, but this was a a kind of a, a plate full of things that I was sort of like middle of the road on, if not outright disliked. So it's (laughs) an interesting week for me this week. The stacks are irregular. No, but I, I usually have something where I'm like, I can support this. Like I can stand, like I can give it my thumbs up stamp of approval and say this confidently is my pick of the week. This week, my pick of the week is sort of like, I guess if you like this, then this, maybe this is my pick. You know, if you like Raiders of the Lost Ark knockoffs, maybe Strike Commando 2 is my pick of the week. I don't really know. Anyways. Uh, Yeah. Well, that's it for Digital Noise. Thank you, John, for joining me. Do you have anything you want to point people at that you're doing? I'm on Twitter at Golson, G-H-O-L-S-O-N. You can check out my artwork at Mr. Golson, M-I-S-T-E-R, Golson.com. There you go. And Digital Noise will be back in about another week with more Digital Noise. Bye.